right, let's again take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at the last section of this chapter. And then I'm going to touch a little bit on chapter 13 because chapter 13 begins the practical application of pretty much all that's taught in the whole book of Hebrews. And the application is, is vitally important. Sometimes we want to get to the application right away, but the Bible takes a long time to lay the foundation of why we should be doing what the Bible says we ought to be doing. So Hebrews chapter 12, and while you're there, just turn over to Luke chapter uh, 14. Just stick your hand there for a minute, verse 16. I want to look at that in a second. But let me just have a word of prayer as I begin today. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I pray that you would take me as a weak vessel. And I pray you would display your glory in this earthen clay. So Lord, you may be magnified, your word may be heard, and your people may listen to it and obey it and live in light of what it says. And I pray that we would all take the admonition and exhortations and warnings that are given in this passage of Scripture. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So brethren, I have a question for you. Do you believe, do you believe that the, the, that the salvation that the Lord has acquired for us is indeed a great salvation? Do you believe that? And that Jesus Christ's priestly and sacrificial work is indeed magnificent. Do you believe that? Well, if you believe that and you understand those things, it should change the way you live. It should change the way you think. In fact, in the first chapters of Hebrews... It laid out for us concerning the Son, Jesus Christ, that the Son is the inheritor of all things in chapter 2, that He is the creator of all things in chapter 1, that He is the radiator of the glory of God in chapter 1. He is the representer of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the savior of all the redeemed. And he is the finisher and completer of everything. That's who Jesus is. And that's just in a few verses in the first part of Hebrews. So Jesus has been displayed all throughout this book as the apex of divine revelation in which Jesus fulfills completely the office of prophet, of priest, of king, and is the finisher of all that God has spoken. Therefore, the incarnate Son is the superior revelation of God the Father. God has spoken in His Son. It is His ultimate communication. It is His final word. If someone rejects that, they are lost forever, for eternity. So you see, when you get lost 
in the grandeur of so great salvation, you will indeed conclude that the greatest thing that could have ever happened to you on this earth is that someone spoke to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, he opened your eyes, he granted you faith and repentance, and you believed, and now you're understanding more and more about what Christ did on the cross. But not only that, what's ahead, what the gospel has acquired for you for all eternity. See, that changes your life you will conclude that it's, it is the most supreme gift that you could have ever received on this earth while you're here. It is the greatest thing that could ever go into your ears. It is the greatest thing that your mind could ever begin to think about. That God came to you and gave you the gospel and you became one of his children because of it. See, if you understand that, you'll not want to let go of the grandest gift, gift that, you, that could ever be bestowed upon you by God himself. You'll never want to let go of that. You'll cling to that with your dying breath. You'll cling to that with your eyes closing, anticipating all that God has promised you when you open them up in glory. See, that is what a believer is and that is what keeps us running this race. Because we are such undeserving sinners. We are so corrupt to the core of our heart. When we see us how God sees us, then we realize that we can't save ourselves. No one could save us. Only Christ can save us. So the message of Hebrews is don't miss, don't ignore don't refuse Jesus, but simply this. Listen to the warning and heed it, and then live according to it. It all goes together. It's all one package. It's not just a profession of faith. It is a lifestyle that God has called us to, right? So therefore, this morning, I'm going to mention a final warning. Not to refuse when God is speaking and go back to verse number 25 of chapter 12. Then I want to look over to a final admonition again to pay attention to what God has done and what he will do. And then an exhortation to live according to it. Now let's look at verse number 25 again. And look at this final warning in the book of Hebrews to all those who were listening to his message and it says this, see to it, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, and we already mentioned that's Moses as God's mediator between him and men, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So the very word here for refuse is the same word that's used in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse number 18, where it refers to men who are invited to the great supper of God and they begin to refuse the invitation of God. 
And so let's turn there for a minute and just get the sense of this narrative that is spoken in the Gospel of Luke, and they begin to make excuses why they cannot come. And it says in chapter 14 of Luke, verse number 16, I'll begin reading there, because this very word refuse means to consider me excused. It also means to decline an invitation, to hear the invitation, to understand what the implication is calling one to, and just to say this, you know what, I just can't come. And look what it says in verse number 16. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner. And he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. There's that word. And here's the first one. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me Excused. If you buy a piece of land, you better look at it before you buy it, right? Not afterwards. And then look at verse number 19. It says, another one said, I have bought five ox, yoke of oxen. I am going to try them out. You better try them out before you buy them. These excuses are lame, all right? Very lame. And, uh, and then it says, please consider me excused. Verse 19, another one says, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused and then um, 20 and another said I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come okay you got married what does, what does that mean right but look at verse 21 and the slave came back and reported to his master then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame and the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. In verse 24, here's the verse, the key verse of the one who speaks. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. You know, when we come to the Lord's table, we're really in our mind coming to a table where we're at peace with God and we're going to taste of the good things that God's done and given. The Bible says that if you're invited to come to God's feast and you have some lame excuse why you cannot come, you will never taste of God's dinner, ever. You will never know the goodness of what is offered to you. And so, who do you think has a greater responsibility to pay close attention to the voice of God. Do you think it's Israel of old or Christians, believers of all ages, to ignore or to set aside God's final revelation through His Son is to display a level of contempt for the new covenant that is incongruous and incompatible with a true Christian's profession of faith. In fact, it is tantamount to rejection of the gospel. A rejection of the gift of salvation. As one commentator says, the greater the gift, the greater the gift, the greater the peril involved in its rejection. 
So, if you're offered the greatest gift in the universe and you reject it, well, what do you think the implications are going to be for such a huge rejection? There has to be implications to that. There has to be consequences to that. I have been saying already that all who heed and listen to the voice of God and obey what they hear, well, then they're going to receive a blessing, but a deliberate deliberate refusal to listen to God will bring dire and eternal consequences and just think in your mind for a minute when Paul's writing to the Galatians and remember he says to them listen do not be deceived matter of fact don't let yourself deceive yourself and then he says this God is not mocked for whatever a man sows this is what he'll also reap right And then he says this, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, if anyone is false to God, they'll lose everything. But if if anyone is true to God, they will receive everything. That's what the writer of Hebrews is leaving the people. Dr. Robert Louis Stevenson said of this Galatian sowing and reaping, he said, sooner or later in life, we will sit down to a banquet of consequences. See, ignoring consequences may be in fashion, and they are. Let's put it off over there. Let's not think about the end result. I want to live for now. Don't complicate things with what's coming, right? That is a horrible and a foolish way to live. That is not the way the Bible calls us to live because ignoring consequences may be in fashion, but consequences have a way of catching up with us, don't they? I say to people, and I'm saying this in a very holy way, the best way I can, it comes and bites you in the butt. It does. Dr. Robert E. Lee, G. Lee, of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, said, Payday someday is written in the Constitution of God's universe. The retributive providence of God is a reality as certainly as the laws of the gravitation are a reality. See, I, I have come to make a correction also this morning from the last time I preached, I said in our passage of Scripture that it was Jesus speaking from heaven. But after consideration, I say that the one speaking from heaven really is God the Father, at least in this immediate context. That the judgment that fell on those who refused to obey the law, according to the Old Testament, it was God, not Moses, who spoke to Israel. It's recorded in Deuteronomy, God speaking, even though Mo- Moses was the, the, the face, he was the voice, it was God speaking through him. It was his voice at Sinai that warned and terrified the Israelites of their obligations under the Old Covenant. It was the voice of God that shook the earth And of course, uh, we have it recorded in verse number 26 of Hebrews chapter 12. It says, and his voice shook the earth then. Talking back to uh, 
the book in the book of Hebrews to Moses. So they heard and they refused to listen and did not escape the curses attached to the old covenant. How much less, how much less in verse 25 will we escape if we turn away from him who warns from heaven? So no one will escape was the conclusion that God's fiery judgment if a person rejects his warning from heaven is final. It's final. So see, the Christian has the greater responsibility of not dropping out of this race that God's called us to, but to continue to remain attentive to the voice of God, sensitive to the voice of God, sensitive to the moving of the Spirit of God as the, He speaks through the Word, and then to keep on being committed and faithful until the day you die. That's what we're called to do. Why are we called to do that? Well, because of the superior character of the Christian message. What's, what's that character? It's from God, and it's final. There's no other message. Right? If you don't believe that, you're in trouble. Also, because of the list of privileges connected to Mount Sinai that I already, uh, excuse me, to Mount Zion that I already mentioned in verse number 22. We want to go back up there for a minute just to remind you, or if you haven't heard it, it says this in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See, you have come, and you are to run because of the list of privilege given to you and I as believers from God. God let us in on what he's going to do, what's ahead of us. So what? To motivate us that there is a prize at the end. There's a prize at the end. And then also, because you are recipients of a kingdom that cannot be shaken and has no end. Verse number 28 of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So, to bolster the seriousness of the warning, Scripture brings to mind how God shook the earth at the time of Mount Sinai, and when God spoke, the earth shook violently, where it's recorded in Exodus 19:18. Now Mount Sinai was all in spoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of the furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. What are we talking about here? We're talking about an earthquake, right? We experienced a minor earthquake not too long ago. Epicenter coming out of Virginia, right? I was in my office, and um, uh, everything started moving back and forth like this, and I thought I was having a dizzy spell. I'm sure some people said the same thing, like, hey, what's going on here? You know, they started holding on to stuff. Well, you know, and, well, I started holding on to things, and the things were still moving. And uh, so I said, whoa, I didn't even think, put two and two together right away. And then we, my wife went out to the post office there, and the, uh, the lady said there, the postmaster, did you, did you feel the earthquake? Oh, that was an earthquake. Oh, wow. And uh, then I found that it was, but that was nothing, right? That was nothing when God speaks. In fact, the psalmist, this was such, you know what? Earthquakes do burn into your memory, 
hurricanes do burn into your memory, right? Things like disasters, you remember where you were, what you were doing, all the stuff that you had to do while it was going on and afterwards, where the psalmist writes in Psalm 68, the earth quaked and the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. And then even in Psalm 99, again, he says, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion and he is exalted above all the peoples let them praise your great and awesome name holy is he so quaking and the presence of God often go together in scripture well in chapter 12 of Hebrews in verse 26 there is a promise that he will once again shake the earth And this gives us a final admonition to pay attention to what God has done and what he will do. If you look in verse 26, see, God's just not done shaking things up. He's not done doing those kind of things because the next time he does it, the next time he shakes the earth, he will not only shake the earth, but he will also shake the heavens. Look what it says in verse 26. And, the, and his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. So here is a promise of what God will do in the future. That God shaking will have a definitive eschatological character. That's an end time character to it. This is what he's talking about here. He's talking about a general sense of the end. I'm not talking about any of the details, but the, the end. And so that will produce, this, this final shaking will produce something final and radical to everything that we know that is normal today. And so what is he doing here? You know what he's doing? He's quoting from the prophet Haggai. That's what he's doing. And he's, this is what the prophet Haggai says. If you'd like to turn there, you can. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, and then also verse number 21. That God is going to shake the most reliable things that we depend upon. And what do, what do we really depend upon? You know what we depend upon more than anything else? That the sun's going to set every day, and the sun's going to rise every day. Right? that the earth is still moving around the sun at a certain speed, at a certain angle. And in doing so, it keeps life normal as we know it. And so Haggai chapter 2, verse number 6, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also, and the dry land. And in verse 7 it says, And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 21 of the same chapter, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, here in its historical context, it is 
talking about shaking the nations to bring the stolen treasure back to the second rebuilding of the temple to restore its magnificence. It's got a local context, but it also has a future message. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on the future message that the Lord has not completely carried out this particular prophecy as of yet. So someday the Lord will shake the earth and he will shake the whole of the universe. Now you just think about that for a minute. All 100,000 million galaxies, each containing at least as many stars, each galaxy 100 light years across will hear the voice of their creator and they will be shaken out of place and yes, even out of existence. That's what he's talking about here. Even our own uh, astrophysicist Dan Fabricki who's become famous again as Greg emailed me He's now at the University of, of uh, California, Santa Cruz, and he and his team have been looking and searching in space for a circum, circumbinary planet. That's a two-sun planetary system, and they found one. And they're thinking about naming it Tatooine. Is that how you say that? Tatooine? Huh? What is it? Tatooine? All right, now Tatooine, of course, you know, is the Star Wars episode number four, A New Hope, where Luke Skywalker looks out over the desert dominated by two setting suns. You remember that? So the uh, official name of the planet is not too exciting, like Dan says. It's Kepler-16b. And so astrophysicists say that Tatooine is not located in a galaxy far far away it's right in our backyard relatively speaking that the two sun planet is about 200 light years from the earth in the constellation uh, Cygnus and uh, so getting to this particular planet aboard a spacecraft traveling at the speed of life that's about 186,282 miles per second would take 200 years right in our backyard. Now, why, why do I say that? Well, not only was I think about it, thinking about it and read that article this past week, but how vast is the universe? When we read a passage of Scripture like this, God knows how vast it is. How powerful is our God, that one who spoke it into existence and keeps it where it ought to be, is going to speak one more time and it's gone. He spoke it into existence and he will speak it out of existence. In fact, the word of God informs us that God has made this present earth and universe temporary. It is not a permanent place. It's never, it was never designed to be permanent, ever. And I, I love that passage of Scripture in Psalms chapter 102 verse 25 and 26 where the psalmist says of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands even they will perish but you endure 
and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. That this particular earth that we live on is temporary, so we ought to be good stewards of it, but don't try to save the planet. Don't try to do that. You don't, that's an effort in futility, because God's going to speak it out of existence. So, the future, more extensive shaking, will be determined, will actually determine what is to be shaken and what is to be shaken and kept. That's why God's going to do it. Because if He's going to take the whole universe and shake it, then it has a future purpose to God. And what is that? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 27 tells us what it is. Look with me back there. It says this, the expression yet once more denotes the removing of things which can be shaken as of created things. That's what he's talking about. So that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So God in divine judgment is going to shake the earth and the universe, where once it's done being shaken by God, whatever remains is eternal. Whatever remains is eternal. In fact, the very word for shaken is a word used for divine judgment, and it's talking about the divine voice divine voice when speaks causes things to move to and fro or causes things to waver or causes things to totter to go out of balance so the God who speaks speaks everything that is created and the God who speaks who created everything speaks again and the nuclear glue comes apart and everything falls apart that's would he let the church know? That's what's coming. And we know it. We have an inside scoop. So see, all the stuff that's going on in the world around there, everything is swirling around us. Everything, all this fear-monging going on in, on our news. You have to have life lock, and you have to have you know, these investments, and you have to have that, and you have to have that. If you don't have this, you know what? all that stuff is very secondary compared to what is happening and what's coming because I tell you what once the shaking is done you will have a relationship with Christ that cannot be shaken nobody can take that away from you in fact this is this is really something that is giving an illusion from the prophet Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 13 where he says this therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. When God holds judgment, nothing is going to get away. No one is going to get away. Isaiah says that the nations are but a drop in the bucket. They are as nothing to God. And we think of these great things concerning what's going on in the world and they are not so great at all and it was the apostle Peter who says but the day of the Lord will be like 
will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So, the question I would have is that who and, and what will be removed? Or let me say it another way. Who or what will not be removed? Well, I really only concluded two things. Number one, the faithful members of his community who share in his holiness will not be removed. They cannot be shaken. In fact, go back up to chapter 12, verse number 14. Remember back then, we looked at this passage there and we were told that the only safe evidence that anyone has that they are in Christ is a holy life, right? That God's not only elected you to salvation, he's elected you to be blameless or to be holy, Ephesians chapter 1. You are called to both. You are not called to half of that. You are called to all of that. So therefore, real conversion will produce a real holy life, a desire to be separated unto God in all your life, from your thinking to your doing to your speaking. That's what God's doing in you. So if you know nothing of your holiness, when we were studying Jerry Bridges, he says you shouldn't flatter yourself that you are Christians. The bottom line, it is not those who profess to know Christ who will enter heaven. It is those who live holy lives. And they don't live holy lives in and of themselves. They live it because of who they're connected to in Christ and what he requires of them as being one of his children on this side of eternity. So in fact, you can't see the Lord, look at verse 14, without holiness, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So here again, we bring it back into this context. If you are a believer and you are a set-apart Christian and you are to reflect certain attitudes and behavior consistent with the Spirit of God living in you and this new relationship you have with Christ, then you can't be shaken. You can't be moved. So if you have come to these things and have been listening to God speaking, then really you cannot be moved from your holy position because you are a faithful member of God's community and are receiving an unshakable kingdom which you are a part of. Again, in the gospel, the, the, the Lord spoke to his disciples and he reminded them in their tribulation and their troubles. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So, even when Jesus was arguing, uh, the disciples were arguing with each other about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Remember that? And uh, he said to them in Luke 12, in Luke 22, verse 29, And just as my Father had granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my Father's, at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the Word of God is telling us, listen, it's going to be those who will not be removed are those who are in the community of, 
that share in God's holiness because of their conversion to Christ. They can't be moved. But there's a second thing that can't be moved too, and that's the kingdom where God dwells. That can't be moved either. So everything's shaken in the universe. There's going to be two things left. There's going to be God's kingdom and us in it. And all the things mentioned in the verses that have gone before that. Other than that, I don't find anything else that stays. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth, but God's going to redo those kind of things. So according to the prophet Daniel, that the Son of Man, referred to, of course, as the Lord, Jesus Christ, we know in the New Testament, he says that, listen, the Son of Man receives a kingdom and then he shares that kingdom with the saints of the Most High, where it says in Daniel 7, verse 18, but the saints of the highest one will receive a kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. And then also Daniel picks it up again in chapter 7, in verse number 27, when he says, then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. And of course, what is he talking about there? He's talking about the saints. Who are they? They're the holy ones. They're the separated ones. Again, he's talking about the saints. They're the holy ones. They're the separated ones. And as God the Father gives Christ the kingdoms, all right, and the kingdom, then Christ concludes or gives the people, the saints of the highest one, the kingdom. And so his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Now, I course believe that's talking about a beginning of an earthly kingdom that heads into the eternal kingdom of God but even if we go if we consider Hebrews when he talks about the kingdom is where God cannot be moved and his kingdom cannot be moved he already said that it's a place that it's the heavenly homeland that it's the unshakable kingdom and that in even Hebrews 13:4 that it's an abiding city which is to come so in other words Zion is the unshakable mountain, the unshakable place where God is worshipped safely without distraction, without interruption, where God reigns forever with Christ at his right hand. So Daniel, and I'd like to turn there for a minute. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 14. I believe that's the passage I want. He also mentions that the Son of Man, a Son of Man, that is Christ Jesus, is crowned King of the Kingdom, and the Father gives the Kingdom to the Son, and He gives the title deed of the Kingdom to the Son. In verse seven twenty-seven, I believe, but it says this: I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was present before him. That's not the scripture I'm asking you to look at. What's that? 7.13? Okay, that was was 7.13. Okay, that was 7.13. So it's talking about the Son of Man was coming, and then he came up to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days is a picture of the Father, the Heavenly Father, and he was, it was, he was presented before him. So really in this passage of Scripture, we have the crowning point of all human history when Jesus Christ is the crowned king in Daniel. The coronation of the king. 
But look over at verse 14 of chapter 7 of Daniel. And to him was given dominion, glory. Now that word glory is very, very important because Israel was looking after the destruction of the temples and after the 70 AD, they were still looking for the glory of God spoken by Ezekiel the prophet, where the first part of Ezekiel the prophet is the glory of the Lord departed. The second part of Ezekiel the prophet is the dry bones get life and Israel's now in its land, and God, what does he does? He resurrects them to life. He causes them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the glory of God returns there to the eternal city. And so Jesus Christ, he receives a dominion. That means a, a, a kingdom, a place to reign, and of course, in a kingdom, in verse 14, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So what's not shaken is this eternal kingdom of God, and it's going to be a kingdom in which the Lord has dominion. He has the full glory of God is present there, and he is in charge of a kingdom. Now, let me just mention something just by way of... Uh, a little bit of a side step. That the first segment of the eternal kingdom is the millennial kingdom. Reveal, really revealing the, the end time drama that will, according to Revelation 20, be a period of a thousand years. According to the prophets and the apostle John, the thousand-year kingdom must be understood as the initial stage all right, of the everlasting kingdom. In other words, this is where it starts. It starts with the Lord being the King of kings and the Lord of lords on earth. It starts with the glory of God being displayed in Jerusalem on this earth where Christ is reigning on this earth. The Many of the prophets speak about this particular time. So I say this, that yes, Hebrews is talking about the eternal kingdom all the way at the end, but what starts that off is this first seg segment or this initial stage of the eternal king kingdom in which, of course, the first segment of this messianic kingdom will differ from the eternal segment on two different counts, at least. The first is this, that mortal human beings will enter the millennial kingdom and bear children that will need to be evangelized afterwards because Satan is loosed for a thousand years and during that thousand years of reign there's going to be children born in the kingdom and secondly many of those born in the kingdom will reject Christ even when Christ is reigning they will reject him even when Satan is bound they will reject him and so they will reject Christ gather as an army against him and rebel at the end of the thousand year when Satan is loose. So after this period where Satan is, is released, the unregenerate human heart is still in rebellion against God. When we get to the latter parts of, of the book of Revelation, you get this sense that God is giving them another chance and they're still rebelling against him. They're still saying, we don't want to believe. We, we, and so they rally to Satan's leadership in that time and of course assemble to make war against Christ 
It was Doug Bookman, and some of you know Doug Bookman. He said that the millennial kingdom will demonstrate the infallib- infallibly the, the entire uh, moral universe, in the entire moral universe, that man's problem is himself. That his own rebellion, his bottomless pride and selfishness, and above all, his hatred of God who deserves his devotion and allegiance will become very clear. There'll be no doubt that man always had this problem, that he was a rebel and a hater uh, of God. And of course, the lost dead are raised for judgment and the eternal aspects of the kingdom begin. So the first phase, the first segment of the kingdom is this earthly reign of Christ on the earth. And then that leads into, after a war and God destroys Satan, into the eternal kingdom. So with all this... With all these encouraging truths our Lord has given to the church as a gift so we are completely informed and we're not in the dark about anything, what are we to do? We're not there yet, right? I don't know how long it's going to take for some of us to get there. Some of us may live very long lives, some shorter lives, but we're going to get there. But in the meantime, I love when the the Scripture begins to show us in the meantime, while we're not there yet, what are we to do? Well, we're exhorted to live expressively, emphasizing that word, in the light of these particular truths and all the truths mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Now, I want you to turn back to Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to look at verse number 28, because it says there that word, therefore. I'm thankful that word is there. He's giving a final exhortation to live your life in the shadow of God's true character and true message to believers. It says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. In other words, you believers already have the kingdom by faith. It's already yours. It's already yours. So when you tell people, are you rich? Yeah, I own a kingdom. You're telling the truth. You are telling the truth. You have a kingdom. You are an an heir of that kingdom. Everything in that kingdom will belong to all believers because of Christ. But there, we are exhorted to two general things in this passage of Scripture that that I believe is, is, is so vitally important, yet so, so simple. In verse number 28, notice what it says. It says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Now, here's the first one. That we are to live with expressible thankfulness in our life. Why? Because of all this we have. Because we have an unshakable kingdom. Because when God shakes the universe, you're going to remain. Because you know Christ. See, if you think about that for a minute, then you have to be thankful about every single thing in your life, both the blessings and, in some way, the negative things in your life, and that your attitude as a believer would always be that of showing gratitude. See, that's what real conversion to Christ does. It removes the impediments of worship. It removes those things that 
causes defilement and cleanses us from defilement caused by sin through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So we are now able, we are now able to genuinely be thankful to our great God and Savior for everything. We are to be thankful. Christians are to be people filled with gratitude. It should overflow in your life. It should come out of everything you do, everything you do, everything you save. So if you catch yourself complaining and grumbling, stop and repent of that sin before God because you're not thankful. You're not thankful. Now you think of all this theology that he comes down to, listen, Christians, you ought to be thankful. It would be much more complicated than that, but it's not, because thankfulness tells a whole lot about what's going on in your heart. Real thankfulness tells a whole lot about how you speak to people. Real thankfulness tells you a whole lot about how you worship God, how you think the importance of where the importance of God's word is, how you think of gathering together with God's people is important. All those things come out of you when you are thankful in fact when you're ministering to people you think ministering to people is something such a privilege to you that you're thanking god even for the difficulty in dealing with people and ministering to them which is always very difficult and very hard but you can't lose your thankfulness because people are obnoxious and they are but we also have the ability as believers to genuinely serve our great God and Savior with a right attitude and live in a way that pleases Him. Look at verse number 28. It says, By which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So here it is. Here's the character of a believer that you are to be thankful all the time about everything and secondly when you serve god you are to do it in you in your mind in an acceptable way you know in other words in a way that really pleases god so you're really serving before the eyes of god not before the eyes of people you're not looking for accolations you're not looking for a pat on the back you're not looking for you know encouragement by their words or anything like that you are serving god because he's seeing what you do and you're serving from your heart and how you're doing it you're doing it with reverence and awe you understand the character of God as you serve, right? So we're to live with acceptable service, according to verse 28. Congregational praise and prayer, words and actions that flow from true gratitude. Well, you know what? What are some of those things? Well, I'm not going to get to them in detail this morning, but I do want you to notice them in your own Bible. Look at chapter 13 because he begins to give them to us. Right? Look at, look at verse number one. Let lo- love the brethren. Con- continue to love the brethren. All right, you, you want to serve God in the right manner? Continue to love the brethren. Look at verse number two. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Because if you do, may, you may have entertained angels without knowing it. And I think he's really talking about angels here. I don't think he's just talking about the word angel means, means messenger. I think he's talking about angelic beings because Hebrews is so keen and focused in on angelic beings that they're involved with your life. They're involved in God's, God's work. They're involved. And then look at thirdly, verse 3. Remember the prisoners, all right? 
Why? Because they're ill-treated. They're, they're separated from society. They're outcasts. Remember those people that are outcasts. Look at verse 4. Make sure your marriage is undefiled. In verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. All right, and then notice in verse 15. It says, offer sacrifices to God. What kind of sacrifices? Through him. It says, through him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Here, here it is again, that you want to offer sacrifices to God. It's going to come out of your mouth, but it's going to first start in your heart. Real praise comes deep in your heart because of the gratitude you feel toward what God has given you and you do believe that you don't deserve anything that God ever gave you and when you realize what he has done for you, you are just overwhelmingly so filled with it that it comes out of your mouth. So when you sing praises to God, when you, when you talk about the Lord, you're just, and even when you're reading the word, you're just getting excited about what the Lord has done. You know what? That's the kind of sacrifices the Lord is pleased with. Is when you open up your mouth, what comes out of it? Are you always negative? Are you always putting people down? Are you always finding fault? Are you always doing those things instead of praising God? Praising God has a way, a magnetic way of drawing people in. And bringing people to a place where you can share the gospel. Verse 17, obey, well, verse 16, do good to others and do not neglect doing good and sharing for which is such sacrifices God is pleased. Here it is, doing good to others, doing good, doing good, doing good. Always looking out on how you can do good to people. And then verse 17, obeying and submitting to your leaders. We don't like this one today, do we? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. You know what? If you're always, if you're always praising God and full of gratitude, it's going to be joy. But if you're always grumbling and complaining, it's not going to be pleasant for anybody, right? And it, it usually is not. And so submitting, this is how we, this is how we are, have acceptable service. This is how we express thankfulness to God, by doing these things, by being involved with these things. And then look at verse 18, praying for each other's sanctification. Pray for us, it says in verse 18, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Praying for each other's sanctification. Each other's what? Holiness. Why? Because with holiness you will see the Lord. And some people who think they're saved, maybe we need to pray for them. I mean, we do need to pray for them that they understand the gospel and are really saved. Right? So we are to, how do we do that? We pray to God. We ask God to set people aside, to sanctify them, to make them holy. And so their profession of faith and their lifestyle connect together and they get enough evidence and assurance that they are God's kids. And then they start serving how with boldness. So, 
I'm going to mention that, of course, next time I look in this passage. But these are just some things. If you want to know, it's right there in Scripture. These are how, you're, these are how you and I are to be thankful and have acceptable worship. These are how we know we please God by doing these things. And there's a ground, though. There's a ground. There's a foundation for acceptable worship. And you know what that foundation is? And this is it. The foundation is this. Living your life in the true life in the true light of God's essential character. What's his essential character? Look at verse 29. For our God is what? A consuming fire. You know what that means? He is holy. God's holy character remains unchanged under the new covenant. Yes, Jesus and God is the same God as the Old Testament. He is the same God as at Sinai, that the God of Zion is the same God as the God of Sinai. He is the same God. And matter of fact, this is an abiding essential character of God, that God is a consuming fire. So when you come to worship, we must keep in mind that our God is both a God of consuming love and a God of consuming fire and so now we have the mercy and love of God and the justice and wrath of God and they give balance to the character of God given in scripture and so what is this? this is the groundwork of holy living this is the ground in which we understand we are to live holy why? our God is a consuming fire and so we must, rever- we must worship him with reverence and with awe So, here's a question for you. Do you live a Christian life that expresses offerings of thankfulness and humble service coupled with reverence and awe? Is that how you endeavor to live your Christian life? If you do, here's the promise you'll not be shaken. You'll not be shaken by divine judgment, but you will remain safe and intact in the unshakable kingdom of God. And you will leave, when you leave this earth, you will leave a baton to be passed down to the next generation on what it really means to be someone who serves God in the right way. And that's what we need more than anything in this world. One of the things that's so amazing when we go to the mall ministry and we talk to young people about the Lord, they know nothing about anything spiritual. They have been fed Facebook and Internet stuff and all this stuff that is nonsense, and they know nothing about God or Jesus Christ or how to be made right with Him, and neither do most of them care. Neither do most of them care. You see, we need to, we need to be out there. And I really th- I'm really thankful for the ministry at the mall. I, I really love uh, going there and talking to people. Is it, is, it, is it full of, am I full of fear on Friday? Yes. I'm trembling in my boots because I don't know what people are going to say. But I, when I get there and I get to talk to people and I get to just, it's just amazing. You, you learn so much and you get to, you get to share the gospel so I, I, I thank Paul for leading that up and being the guy who does that so this morning the bottom line is where do you stand how are you really living your life
I think this chapter gives you plenty of, plenty of information to examine yourself completely. And uh, at least in the area of are you thankful? Are you serving God in an acceptable way? Are you humble before God? Do you understand in your heart the reverence and all you're to display before the Lord? Do you realize that he is a consuming fire, that you, you can't get away with anything? All right? And that's not how we live as a believer. We live really with joy. We live with, with uh, a heart that we know God is for us, not against us. But he's still holy. Right? And so we're always to remember that. And express that to others when they see our life. If we live like everybody else, if we sin like everybody else sins, people look at you and they don't even take you serious. But if there's a marked difference in your life, if there's a marked difference in your attitude, if there's a marked difference in the way you speak, then they take notice. They take notice, and they want to know, wow, what's going on with you? Why are you so different? What's happened to you? And then you get a chance what? To tell them. You get a t- chance to speak the message of the gospel. And all God's people did say what? Let's pray. Lord, Again, I'm amazed at your word. I bowed before your holiness this morning, and I praise you, Lord, that you did not withhold these things from us. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have been given to us as a down payment, and that you are the one who enables us to understand the word of God to put the word of God into practice to see where we stand before our great God and Savior and to know what will be and how to live while we're here and I pray Lord I ask you Lord that you would work on your people that you would sanctify them that you would make them holy that you would give them such an insatiable desire to put their sin to death and walk away from it once and for all that it would be the evidence it would be the very character in which shows them that the Spirit of God and the Word of God is working in their life to set them apart more and more to God. For we know, Lord, when someday you do shake the heaven and the earth, we will remain for one reason, because we are in union with Christ, the King of the kingdom, and we will not be moved. And for this, we praise you. We thank you. We want to offer acceptable sacrifice to you. And I pray, Lord, you would, you would change us in a way that is markedly different than the way we used to live. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.